I think from with two very different presidents on two very thorny issues, war legacy, uh, and then the viability and rationale um, for the alliance, I think Abe managed to, to, to find common cause with Washington. Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. My name is Franz Ocilia and I'm joined today by my co-hosts, Zachary Wheeler and Amanda Yuen. On August 28, 2020, Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, the longest continuously serving Prime Minister of Japan, announced that he would resign the Prime Ministership. In order to further explain Prime Minister Abe's domestic and foreign policy legacy, we're joined today on the podcast by Dr. Sheila Smith. Sheila A. Smith is a Senior Fellow for Japan Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations, CFR. An expert on Japanese politics and foreign policy, she's the author of Japan Rearmed, The Politics of Military Power. Smith joined CFR from the East-West Center in 2007, where she directed a multinational research team and a cross-national study of the domestic politics of the U.S. foreign military presence in Japan, South Korea, and the Philippines. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Smith. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. To begin the podcast, we would like to discuss the type of leader Prime Minister Shinzo Abe is. So would you please describe to our listeners Mr. Abe's background and his public persona? Sure, be happy to. So, so Abe-san is widely known as one of Japan, coming from one of Japan's leading political families. He's a representative from Yamaguchi Prefecture, which is a conservative Japanese prefecture. Uh, it's a long-standing seat held by his family. He is the grandson of former Prime Minister Kishinobusuke, who was the prime minister who led the renegotiations of the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty in the late 50s. Um, he is the son of Abe Shintaro, who is the former foreign minister of Japan, a very highly regarded foreign minister of Japan. So Mr. Abe is a blue-blood politician. Um, he is uh, somebody who's obviously emerged onto the Japanese political scene at a young age. Lots of media accounts have him sitting at his grandfather's knee. Um while he was prime minister, and then as a young man, being the, the secretary to his father when he was foreign minister. Uh, he's not a stranger to governing, and he's certainly not a stranger to foreign policy or to the U.S.-Japan alliance. Now, talking about foreign policy specifically, if you had to define Mr. Abbas's views on foreign policy and the world around him and how he changed and how he maybe changed Japanese foreign policy, what would they be? So he, this is his second time in office. This is the the time when he arrived in December 2012 and just is about to resign next week. He will have been the longest serving prime minister of Japan. Uh, so that's an important um, foundation from which to think about his role in foreign policy. His first time in office from 2006 to 2007 was truncated again by health issues. And he departed the office quite quite quickly and was not able uh, to really play an effective role uh, for Japan outside the country. He wanted to, but I think his uh, health precluded that. But this latest stint as prime minister allowed Mr. Abe to to work with two very different presidents of the United States, first of all, um, President Obama for the first, uh, first of all, and then second, obviously, Mr. Trump. Uh, he's Today, we make a lot of his relationship with Mr. Trump, but it's important to remember that his first time, first years in office, uh, he was working with uh, Mr. Obama, uh, and they worked on a whole host of issues, including the tensions between Japan and South Korea and the historical legacy issue of the comfort women, 
Um, that was the time, of course, also when Mr. Abe uh, made his uh, well-known statement, the Abe statement on the 70th anniversary of the end of the war in 2015. Uh, so history and historical legacy was a big part of that period of U.S.-Japan uh, relations. And of course, it culminated with President Obama's visit to Hiroshima and the visit later by Mr. Uh, Abe to Pearl Harbor. So it was an interesting time. It's an interesting contrast to then Mr. Abe's relationship with Mr. Trump, which, as we all know, was forged early on, just after the election of Mr. Trump in 2016, the famous visit to the Trump Tower and the gift of the gold golf club was, you know, lots of media attention to that unusual and un unprecedented introduction. So Mr. Abe has managed very different leaders, has managed the U.S.-Japan relationship quite closely and personally, has a deep interest in it, um, and strong views about the necessity of the alliance for Japan. But there's other issues, too, where I think we often don't think so much about his legacy, but I think are equally important for Japan. He navigated with Mr. Trump, of course, who's quite unpredictable, but he also navigated around um, this most recent episode in U.S. foreign policy. When the United States decided to withdraw from the TPP, for example, Mr. Abe with others in, in Asia led uh, the negotiation to completion. It's now called the CPTPP, um, but that is the regional trade agreement that the United States was very active in in, in, uh, in advocating for during the Obama administration. Uh, so Mr. Abe has, has moved forward with regional trade and has also forged a new agreement with the EU, something that was very difficult for Japan. So the Japan-EU trade agreement is another one of Mr. Abe's accomplishments. Um, he has had difficult relations, of course, with uh, Xi Jinping in China. He came into office in late 2012 with the Senkaku Island dispute in full uh, in full flare. Um, he has st stood strong, I think, in terms of Japan's defenses, uh, but has also slowly and steadily managed to persuade Mr. Xi and others in the CCP to think uh, of a new way for the U Japan and China to to manage their relationship. Unfortunately, uh, Xi Jinping's visit to Japan, his state visit to Japan was canceled because of the coronavirus. So Abe has also worked assiduously on the China relationship, a very difficult relationship for Japan. He's tried very hard with Russia, with Mr. Putin, uh, to finally complete a peace treaty. Uh, unfortunately, that was not successful, largely because the, the Russians were not ready to make compromises on the territorial issue. Um, so there's a lot of issues here where he he put his own personal time and effort and energy behind the old-fashioned you know, idea of statecraft. Um, and Japan has, a, has an awful lot of challenges ahead of it in the region. So I would just conclude with last, a last legacy that I think is very important for Japan and will be very important for Mr. Abe's successor, and that is Japan, Mr. Abe's idea of an Indo-Pacific strategy for Japan. He prefers to call it a vision, but it's really a strategy where Japan brings its economic, um, military, and its democratic ideals to the table in Asia to try to build a more inclusive uh, order uh, across not only the Pacific, but across the Indo uh, Indian Ocean as well. So you see him being very active with Prime Minister Modi in India, uh, with uh, Australian leaders, but also with the ASEAN leaders as well to try to forge this more comprehensive look at how to maintain regional stability. And Dr. Smith, we'll, we'll dive deeper into all of these foreign policy issues later in the podcast. But to wrap up, 
our context of Mr. Abe, um, would you explain why he decided to to announce his resignation from the prime ministership uh, last August? So there's the immediate reason, which of course he stated in his resignation, which is his health. Uh, as I noted earlier, this is this was also the cause for his uh, stepping down from prime minister the prime ministership in 2007. So he has a long-standing chronic illness uh, that is exacerbated by stress and it can be managed by medication, but of course it, it can't be completely uh, controlled or eradicated. So that was the immediate uh, issue. The larger context here, of course, though, is is his, uh, his support rating had plummeted over the course of 2020. COVID-19 had derailed a lot of what Mr. Abe and his government had planned for the year, the Tokyo Olympics, for example, um, a lot of what was expected to happen this year was to reinforce Mr. Abe's economic issue, uh, economic planning, uh, Abenomics, to showcase Japan's technology and society to the world. And this then Mr. Abe was going to step out right, of office with, with these successes behind him. But COVID, of course, derailed it, this whole vision uh, Olympics postponed, Japan's economy is in tatters, and of course there's the public health crisis that all of our countries are facing. Uh, his support rating plummeted uh, in the spring uh, when he was characterized, I think somewhat unfairly to be honest, but he was characterized as being slow on the, up, uh, on the response to the pandemic. I think by May his support rating had plummeted to the 30 percentile and then finally by the end of the month down to about 27 percent which for a prime minister who came into office with 70% support rating, that was the lowest it had ever gone during his eight years or seven and a half years. So he has um, uh, uh, he had a very uh, difficult 2020. I'm sure the stress was a, a reality. Um, so I'm sure the health issue was real. But I think there was also a, a thinking about what would be the um, steadiest and stablest transition of power in Japan, given the fact that Mr. Abe may not be able to continue. So you're, you're watching uh, unfold this week or this coming week, uh, a very managed transition in the leadership of the Liberal Democratic Party. Well, Dr. Smith, I think the first thing that you mentioned that I, I find really fascinating is that the, the Japanese public found him to be slow on the response to COVID when you know, in comparison to the U.S., that seems laughable. Um, just I looked this up now. It's Japan has 73,000 recorded cases of COVID-19 and 1,400 deaths, which is obviously terrible. Any deaths from COVID-19 is obviously something you'd want to avoid. It just seems, you know, very unreal that that would be considered a slow response to COVID-19. Um, but I, I kind of wanted to shift to the idea of how domestic politics might affect um or how domestic politics affected Prime Minister Abe's time in office, and then possibly how it blended into his foreign policy. In the United States, a lot of the times domestic issues will go into foreign policy, whether or not that's a good thing. Um, so first, what were Mr. Abe's kind of primary domestic goals heading into office? And then second, did these domestic goals ever affect the way he conducted his foreign policy abroad? 
Sure. I mean, absolutely. This was a, I, I don't think in any country you can separate domestic politics from foreign policy. And most of my research and writing, in fact, has tried to link the two to show the way in which the domestic situation and it, domestic actors and, and interests have shaped the decision-making on the global stage by Japan. So Mr. Abe, of course, came into office in 2012. Um, it's important to understand um, that he, the, his party had been in opposition for three years, right? Uh, the LDP is the Japanese Conservative Party. Mr. Abe's party has been in power either in coalition or in the majority for most of the post-war period from 1955 when it was founded. But in 2009, it was voted out of office um, quite quite spectacularly. Uh, a new party, the Democratic Party of Japan, won a majority in the lower house of parliament again, stimulating the change in government. So when he came back to power at the end of 2012, the LDP was also coming back to power after having been out and chafing somewhat under this, you know, um, this, this rebuke by the Japanese public. So you had a party that came back, organized around Mr. Abe, um, but also committed to being unified in their pursuit of, of Japanese um uh, of a policy agenda that would restore stability to Japan. Two elements of that policy agenda for Mr. Abe were really important. The first was his Abenomics platform, which I think I mentioned earlier. This was the three arrows, if you'll recall, from the very early part of his time in office um, that was going to introduce a, a more aggressive monetary approach um, that was going to use fiscal stimulus to ensure uh, to jumpstart economic growth, and also to address some of the larger structural problems in the Japanese economy. This is a, an economy that is aging quickly. Um, about 28% of the Japanese people today, uh, maybe almost 29% now, are, are 65 or older. In other words, they're in retirement. In a decade and a half from now, that'll be closer to 34% of the population. So a third, right, of the Japanese population will be retired. So this is a serious problem. It's a challenge for Japanese, the Japanese econ economic uh, performance, but also for Japanese society. Um, so there's a lot of structural changes that Mr. Abe uh, wanted to, and, and his party wanted to impose. One um, important specifically to foreign policy was uh, agricultural reforms. This was a, a sector of the Japanese economy that was fairly stagnant, right? It was populated mostly by elderly Japanese farmers, um, but it was also a stumbling block to Japanese full participation in the Trans-Pacific Partnership. So that was one of the pieces of the puzzle, very clearly, where domestic reform, domestic economic um, uh, change needed to happen for Japan to play a more fuller role on the global stage and trade. Another area that Mr. Abe uh, addressed his attention to um, is the security side, Japan's defenses. And here there's a whole host of security policy reforms, somewhat controversial, uh, some of them more easily acceptable to the Japanese public, um, but that required legislation to, uh, Im to implement. And that meant that the, he had to have a fairly strong position in the Japanese diet to be able to to make that happen. So I'll run through them, not in any particular order, but the, very quickly after he came into office, for example, he and his uh, cabinet drafted a national security strategy, the first one that Japan had ever had. Um, he also uh, work, got to work on a law, a secrecy law that would uh, increase the Japanese government's 
uh, ability to protect military secrets. Um, that was controversial, um, but it passed nonetheless. He reinterpreted the Article 9 of the Japanese Constitution, which I'm sure we're going to discuss at greater length. But in terms of military policy, that reinterpretation meant that Japan would allow its military to act and to use force if necessary uh, alongside other national militaries. And first and foremost, of course, that would be the United States. But it would also mean other national partners, potentially Australia, potentially India, um, potentially uh, one of the ASEAN states if, if, if it was necessary for Japanese security. Um, they, he also rewrote uh, the, the long-term defense plan and built in consistent increases in Japanese defense spending, something, again, that had been very politically uh, difficult to do by his predecessor. So all of this is just to say there's a bigger package of issues, uh, policies here, but the, the security side of Japanese uh, foreign policy um, was really really needed a very strong political foundation within Japan to move forward. And the LDP and, and Abe managed to sustain a two-thirds majority in the lower house, allowing them to make those kinds of changes. So I want to dive a little bit more into exactly what you were talking about, um, Article 9 and some of the security issues that um, Prime Minister Abe was focused on. Um, Earlier in the conversation, you mentioned comfort women. Um, you also mentioned how uh, President Obama visited Hiroshima and um, Prime Minister Abe visited Pearl Harbor. So there definitely seems to be a legacy of uh, World War II almost in the shadow of the background of Japan's security issues and maybe even foreign policy generally. Um, can you give our listeners a greater idea of the importance of Article 9 um, and why President Abe wanted to change it, and why at this specific moment you think that he made this move. So this is a longer story than we can probably cover in a, in, a, in this short podcast, so let me just give you the highlights. Um, Article 9, um, of course, was, was part of the Constitution that was uh, promulgated in 1947, so this is under occupation by the United States. Um, it was a drafted largely by an American uh, occupation uh, group of, of um, advisors to General Douglas MacArthur. It was um, by many conservatives in the post-war period. Uh, Article 9 was, was a little bit problematic, not necessarily because of its substance, but because of the way in which it was linked to the occupation goal of demilitarizing Japan. So, you know, I wrote a piece for the Columbia uh, Journal of Asian Law that goes back to the 1950s, right after the occupation ended. And you can see politicians then focusing in on Article 9 as being, uh, as hampering Japanese ability to defend itself, even back then when the war was still fresh in the memory of everyone. So I, this is, uh, again, on the conservative side of the Japanese political spectrum, Article 9 and has always been an une uneasy part of the, of the Constitution. Um, the Mr. Abe himself has also has has been fairly uh, consistent over time. His grandfather, Mr. Kishi, was also consistently an advocate for removing that kind of limitation on Japan's ability to to think about its defenses and its security. Uh, but the Japanese public is not there. And if you look at polling, uh, I did a what we call an info guide at CFR. Um, that your listeners can find on CFR.org on Japan's constitutional debate. And in it, I have a, a whole series of public opinion polling, specifically on Article 9. It's pretty clear that 
somewhere around 45 to 50 percent of the Japanese people say, why not? Why not revise that? Uh, but the, there is no majority in support of doing it. Many, many Japanese feel that Article 9, in fact, has protected Japan, has been one of the reasons that Japan has been safe in the post-war period and by this very clear articulation of an intent not to use force to settle international disputes. Uh, Abe, uh, Mr. Abe and the Diet, while he was prime minister, repeatedly talked about the constitution generally, uh, saying that the origins were, there was written by foreigners, was not written by Japanese hand. Um, this is a longstanding debate or longstanding point of view uh, in Japan, but he advocated the time had come for the Japanese to put their own imprimatur on the document and to consider revision or amendment. Uh, I think he surprised a lot of people in 2017 when he started out by saying uh, he'd like to add a sentence or two to Article 9. For the hawks, if you let me call them that, inside the LDP, he didn't go far enough. There are people inside the LDP who would like to rewrite the entire article. Uh, but Abisan was simply was making a proposition that you could add a sentence uh, to the existing article. In other words, not change it, but add a sentence or two that basically said that Japan's self-defense forces were constitutional. I think it chafed at him um, that there was still this debate in the country over the constitutionality of the, of the, of the country's armed forces. So that's Mr. Abe's proposition. It didn't gain traction in his party. Uh, it didn't gain traction, obviously, among the Japanese people. But I think you'll have, at some point in Japan, a, a fairly robust conversation um, on constitutional revision, I just don't think it's going to be led. Obviously, it's not going to be led by Mr. Abe. And moving closer to home, um, how would you characterize the U.S.-Japan relationship under Prime Minister Abe? I know you got a little bit into it at the beginning, but would you dive a little bit deeper into into that relationship? Sure. Well, you know, it's it's hard to characterize Mr. Abe's U.S.-Japan relationship. I think the the challenge that arose for Mr. Abe, I, I mentioned earlier, was of course the war legacy issue and the 70th anniversary in 2015 really brought that to the fore, and that was on, with uh, his partner in the Washington at the time. Then was Mr. Obama. Um, but the real challenge to the relationship, I think, that Mr. Abe had to navigate was uh, our, our current president, President Trump. And I say that because um, for the first time, a U.S. president under this administration, a U.S. president began to question whether or not U.S. alliances you know, forged in the wake of World War II and, and sustained over the Cold War and then beyond, whether these alliances were really in the interests of the American people. And so the president, very early on, well, in the campaign in 2016, but then early on in his administration, uh, was very critical of NATO. Uh, suggested we, did, you know, that Article Five protections, which say that the United States will help defend aggression against our allies, Article Five protections uh, should be withheld until uh, we have a trade agreement with Germany. Um, so he publicly and quite uh, conspicuously in his diplomacy suggested that these alliances were negotiable. Um, and Mr. Abe listened, I think, to President Trump. He did not um, suffer the same kind of direct assault, I think, on the basis of the strategic bargain uh, and managed to, to, to diminish in some ways Mr. Trump's criticism of Japan. So he made compromises on trade. There was a bilateral trade deal with Mr. Abe uh, and President Trump. 
And he uh, upped Japan's spending on its military, buying 105 F- uh, new F-35 fighter jets, for example, investing in a new ballistic missile defense system, very expensive one, um, and other kinds of weapons purchases that, that would demonstrate Japan's interest in playing a larger defensive, sh- uh, defensive role in the alliance. So he managed the alliance very differently with Mr. Trump and, and really tried to diminish Mr. Trump's criticism of Japan as a, as a U.S. ally. I think he navigated that quite well. Um, I think it was probably very hard politically and also personally to, to navigate uh, this particular moment in the U.S.-Japan alliance. So I don't know if I have a word that would characterize his management of the relationship, but I think from with two very different presidents on two very thorny issues, war legacy, uh, and then the viability and rationale um, for the alliance. I think Abe managed to 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 find common cause with Washington in a way that would sustain confidence that the U.S.-Japan alliance was still strong. Dr. Smith, I'd like to move to a particularly thorny subject, <laughs> especially since um, March, February of this year, of the start of COVID-19, which is U.S.-China relationship, and then subsequently Japan-China relationship. So, you know, could you talk to our listeners a little bit about, you know, what really is the Japan-China relationship um, since, you know, the election of Donald Trump or maybe before that? Um, Because we've seen such a deterioration of U.S.-China ties. Has that been the case with Japan and China as well, or are they taking a different approach? So let me suggest that we invert... um, um, the order of the relationships for just a second. I do that for, let's talk about Japan, China first, and then what the strategic confrontation between the U.S. and China means for, for Japan. Um, the reason I say that is Japan had trouble with China far earlier um, than the arrival of Mr. Trump. And so you saw in 2010 um, uh, what, what seems to be on the surface a fairly innocuous fishing vessel a uh, fishing trawler in the East China Sea approached Japanese islands, the Senkaku Islands. Uh, now, these are islands that, that, that China also claims. The Chinese refer to these islands as Jiaoyu Islands. And so you have a, a sort of underlying sovereignty dispute here that has been on the shelf for most of the post-war period. But in 2010, it, it flared up. Um, and the, that incident really sparked uh, a pretty significant shift in the way that Japan and China manage their differences over those islands. Um, today, the Chinese uh, Ch- Chinese Coast Guard, as well as the Japanese Coast Guard, uh, patrol the islands and the waters, the contiguous waters. Um, militaries on both sides are fairly active in, in the air on the surface and under the surface of the East China Sea, uh, as is uh, a lot of uh, U.S. activity as well. So it is a much more um, fragile and sensitive uh, place to be. Uh, for Japanese and Chinese military officials today. Um, I, I think it's important to understand that the Japanese, the worsening of the Japan-China relationship came first and then erupted in this way with a full-on sovereignty dispute that involved the potential for military action. And that's way before Donald Trump came into office. Um, what I think the U.S., the, the hardening of the U.S.-China relationship, the rigidity with which we are now um, confronting each other. What this means for Japan, of course, is, is a pretty significant set of choices will become harder uh, as the years go by and if this intensifies. Japan, of course, relies on the United States for its security. Uh, 
Uh, it matters that there are 50,000 men and women in uniform uh, in the United States, men and women, American men and women in uniform stationed in Japan. Uh, our only nuclear aircraft carrier is stationed forward deployed in Japan. Uh, we've got considerable strategic assets that circulate in and out of Japan. So our military pos positioning uh, in Japan is vital to Japanese defenses and to deterrence. Um, it deters Chinese action. It deters potentially uh, North Korean action as well. So that's an important piece of the puzzle for Japan. And it relates to the earlier conversation about the alliance. Um, but it's also true that China is increasingly active and challenging some of the territorial claims, not in the East China Sea, but also in the South China Sea. Uh, the Chinese now have a formidable Navy uh, and Air Force. Uh, with which they are push, wanting to push back the United States and its allies from their borders and from their maritime and airspace. Um, so you have a much more active and um, uh, strong J Chinese military presence in and around Japan. And so that ups the game, so to speak, for the self-defense forces. And I think what you have now, for especially for Japan's uh, maritime and air self-defense forces, you have them on a 24-7 operational uh, a tempo very different than a decade or so ago. And of course, these exercises also involve exercises with the Japanese forces and U.S. forces in the region. We just saw a major exercise last month uh, that involved not only U.S.-Japan forces in the East China Sea, but also Australian forces. So there's been an evolution in the way Japan responds to China's military rise the way the United States responds and the way other uh, allies and partners in the region are trying to also up their military presence to make sure that, that the, the, the Indo-Pacific swath of maritime space continues to be free and open. Japan, however, has, as I mentioned earlier, has tried very hard to, from 2012, and this is completely under Mr. Abe's leadership, right? This is during his tenure in office, to try to recover from this confrontation with China. Economic uh, engagement between China and Japan has always been the tool that they've used. Um, I, I don't have a, a number on my fingertips here, but there's a, a roughly about 5 to 8% of the Japanese economic growth depends on their relationship with China, uh, strong foreign direct investment in China, as well as trade relations. Um, but like us, I think the Japanese companies have become a little bit more careful about um, their economic ties with China. There's more diversification in major supply chains and other kinds of activities by Japanese companies and private sector. I think everybody in the region is worried about the future direction of China. You can see it in the China-Australian relationship, for example, which has become very uh, acrimonious of late. The big structural change here, however, will be the U.S.-China relationship for Japan. And um, as you know, people float this idea of a new Cold War, which I think is excessive, frankly. Um, but if and should China-U.S. Uh, relations become far more confrontational and involve, for example, uh, any kind of military hostilities or any kind of inadvertent uh, tensions that would put militaries on alert or raise the prospect of some kind of military action, Japan is on the front line of that action. And the Japanese self-defense forces know it. Uh, and Chinese military capability, if you are sitting right next door, geography matters here. Um, it is a considerable threat to Japan. So I think you've got a moment for the alliance where it's going to be very, very important for us 
whether it's a Trump 2.0 administration or a Biden administration, it's going to be very important for the U.S. and, and, and Japan to become much more uh, careful about their understanding of each other and to devise more concrete ways in which they find opportunity to cooperate and to understand each other's sort of spaces where cooperation could be difficult should we end up in a, in a much more dif- uh, confrontational military relationship with China. But for now, um, the alliance is, is where Japan places its long-term strategic bets. And um, so I think that uh, you'll find that Japan will be a strong partner of the United States, even as it tries to diminish the, the immediate impact on its own security of China's behavior. So you mentioned the potential for a transition of power come November 2020 in the United States, but we want to conclude the the podcast by actually talking about um, Japan's transition of power. That, of course, will happen given that um, Prime Minister Abe will be stepping down. So who is the most likely candidate as of 2020 to um, become the next Prime Minister of Japan? And under this new leadership, how do you imagine U.S.-Japan relations and in turn um, Japan-China relations to change? So sure. So on September 14th, which is coming up shortly, <laughs> um, the Liberal Democratic Party, Mr. Abe's party, will hold a leadership election to elect the new president of the party. Uh, three candidates have put their hat in the ring, uh, all of them with experience in various Abe cabinets. So they've all served with uh, Mr. Abe, both in government and in some cases in the party. Um, very quickly, those candidates are Kishida Fumio, who was uh, Mr. Abe's foreign minister from 2012 to 2017. Um, the Ishiba Shigeru, who is a longstanding leader of the LDP, has run for the presidency before, has been was secretary general in the first two years of the Abe cabinet, uh, 2012 to 2014, and then went on to be minister for economic revitalization. Uh, he has, in recent years, been more of a critic of Mr. Abe than the other two candidates. Um, the, fir- the last candidate, Mr. Suga, Suga Yoshihide, is the current chief cabinet secretary, and he's been kind of Mr. Abe's right-hand man in governing Japan for the entire time that Abe has been in office. It is highly likely that Mr. Suga will win. Um, the race is structured so that the largest voice in this election, this party election, will go to the diet members the legislators. And they have already, the major factions in the Diet have already aligned themselves around Mr. Suga. So it looks like it's going to be a Suga cabinet. But I will say this morning, Mr. Suga kind of hit the third rail of Japanese politics um, <laughs> because he made a statement um, that uh, Japan's uh, consumption tax will have to have to go up again. So it'll be interesting to see whether or not he's that will have any effect on, on his viability in the race. But I think everybody's getting ready for a Suga, Prime Minister Suga, coming um, coming shortly, coming next week. What that means is a caretaker government, quite frankly, um, until a general election. The current lower house term uh, expires in October of 2021. So the, the LDP will have to call an election before next fall. And that means they will, as you know, it's a parliamentary system. They have some discretion over the timing of that. 
Um, and as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, they have a two thirds majority. So it's unlikely that there will be a vote of no confidence, for example, which is the other way that you would have an election. So I think you're going to have the LDP uh, under Mr. Suga's leadership, most likely, um, looking at the, t- the pace and the tempo and the, the opinion of the Japanese people and trying to find the right moment to ha- to call the election. Um, and that's the place where I think you're going to see a, a larger debate over the post-Abe era and where Japan may need some policy corrections or adaptations. Of course, right now, as, as we all know, we're in the middle of this COVID pandemic and the economic impact of that pandemic on Japan is will be severe. Um, projected somewhere on the, you know, that Japan has already lost somewhere around six to 7% of its GDP this year. So, and it could be higher going forward. So we're in a sort of crisis moment in terms of how to run the country. You may not find a lot of innovation until we get beyond this crisis. So it'll be interesting to watch when and how the next prime minister decides to have this, this lower house election. Uh, Mr. Suga, though, is, is, I think, widely expected to be the person that we will be re- referring to as the Prime Minister of Japan from next, next week forward. Well, Dr. Smith, thank you very much for joining us today on the podcast and for, and for your time as well. Thank you so much. It was a great conversation. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We'd like to thank the International Studies Department and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Subscribe on iTunes, give us a follow on Spotify, and leave a comment. We'll see you next time.